Hey, hey, friends. Welcome to the very first episode of Nobody's Damsel. I'm your host, Ellie Coburn, and this is a cultural commentary podcast at the intersection of princess, purity, political, and pop culture. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to go ahead and do some really quick housekeeping. First and foremost, I want to let you know that you can stream a new episode of Nobody Stansel every Friday morning. Uh, episodes will be released before 12 noon Pacific Standard Time, anywhere podcasts are streamable, including uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. A second order of housekeeping business, I just want to be super transparent with you and let you know that there has been a lot of bit of a learning curve with uh, the audio engineering side of podcasting, and I am definitely still very much in the thick of that. It is most important to me that I go ahead and get some content out for you all, um, but I'm going to ask for just the most grace you can muster with all of the audio issues that are going to be an inevitable part of these first few episodes. Um, With that being said, let's go ahead and get right into it. Um, This first episode is really just going to be me unpacking kind of the who, what, when, where, why, how of Nobody Stamsel, introducing you to the podcast and what I hope um, to, you know, see the platform become, as well as just an opportunity to introduce myself as your host and all that fun and good stuff. So yeah, let's go right into it. For those of you that have been here on social media, you know, waiting for the podcast to come out, I absolutely consider you just the bread and butter foundation of this passion project of mine, and I couldn't do it without you. So thank you so, so much. Um, Big, huge, massive shout out on the first episode to everybody that is coming over from Instagram and other social media platforms to give this podcast a shot. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, It's kind of hard to know where to begin, but I did come prepared with a bit of an outline, so we'll see how I fare. Um, I guess I should start by saying that Every significant personal and professional decision in my adult life thus far has been led on a whim by my gut of guts and my heart of hearts. So when I tell you that I didn't come to the decision to host a podcast lightly, you have to know that my slow and steady approach to this launch is actually incredibly off-brand to my normal whim decision-making. I've known for a long time, I would say like years that a podcast was the right next step for me. Also, housekeeping note, if you hear banging and that sort of thing, which I'm going to try to keep to a very minimum, it's because I'm sitting in a recording studio right now, and to know me, which I hope you do get to know me, is to know that I can't fucking sit still, and so I'm inevitably going to be like hitting the mic um, when I'm talking with my hands, even though there's no one else here with me. So my apologies in advance for that. Again, I will try to keep my hands to a minimum, my hand banging to a minimum. But anyways, uh, so yes, I've known for a long time that I wanted to do a podcast. I've been a storyteller for as long as I can remember. And honestly, connecting with strangers on the internet through stories and lived experience, it's become a pretty integral part of my healing and growth journey. Uh, I've also been oversharing on the internet for a long time. Um, like a long, long time. 10 years ago at 13, I started a then viral lifestyle blog on the Virtuous Blogspot app. Now, only the real ones know Blogspot. 
because before Instagram, before Tumblr, kind of in like the era of MySpace, there was Blogspot. And um, when I say viral, I, I don't mean like micro viral. I mean, like hundreds of thousands of people read this blog, which would have been fine and good if I wasn't a fucking teenager using it as a open diary. So basically for five years, I blogged daily and publicly on life and faith and mental health um, on this blog that I had called The Ellie Life. (laughs) I can't. I can't. A lot of you are like, what? I had no idea. And to that I say, of course you had no idea. I spent a lot of time and energy scrubbing the internet to make sure that you would never have any idea because that shit was embarrassing. And honestly, you know, I will say that it was a a very intimate logged recollection of a very vulnerable time in my life. I had just lost my dad. Um, I I was going through a lot of stuff and I I did find community on the internet. I remember uh, one specific kind of comment that comes to mind was one time uh, I got a comment from someone, it was a a username, ambersunshine243, and she had messaged me on my post that I had titled Overcoming Suicidality because... um, Again, this was my public diary, and I was myself in a mental health clusterfuck when I was writing it. And so um, (laughs) she commented, Amber Sunshine243 commented, asking to talk because she was struggling. And so naturally, you know, because I was 15 and stupid, uh, I gave her my phone number on Blogspot. And um, though that was a very risky move... Uh, it turned out all for the better. We ended up talking on the phone for hours that night. And even though it was just that one night, that was really an impactful moment in my career because I was connecting with somebody. Um, this only happened a handful of times where I felt like my intersectionality to them was hopefully helping them in some way. And we had that personal connection. But anyways, that blog has thankfully uh at my own hand, long since been deleted and forgotten, and kind of in a dramatic turn of events, it was funny because as I've been preparing Nobody's Damsel, I went through to just make sure that the internet is on the up and up if anyone tries to Google me, and I noticed that the Ellielife.com has been sold to a Chinese porn distributor because obviously I haven't paid that URL in years. Um, so you could say that my you know online diary um, of my teenage years has a, a different legacy these days. But um, as I've been preparing Nobody's Damsel, I have been thinking a lot about um, the LELife.com and just the type of person that I was in my adolescence to be just so like, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm just going to put this on the internet. Um, More importantly, though, I've been thinking a lot about legacy and digital footprint and the social implications of vulnerability, because that's a lot of what podcasting is. That's a lot of what blogging is. And I think it was in and through these thoughts that I realized that I have waited so long to set a podcast in motion, not really because my gut was telling me to wait, um, because again, I'm a whim decision maker, but because this is honestly such a specific way to potentially wreck my reputation. Um, and it is terrifying to think that if history repeats itself in the form of the or any other, um, I, that was not my only 
claim to fame or brief moment on the internet stardom um, that I quickly buried to the death. Uh, But if, you know, Nobody's Damsel is anything like that, uh, a decade from now, I could be so evolved past whoever I am today that what I say in these, you know, these podcast episodes, it, it could become unrecognizable to me. And I think the thing about that and that thought is that it's especially terrifying now because I'm old enough to know that I want that. I want to usher in every new decade and every new endeavor with life experience and human connection and personal growth so significant that I can lovingly release the person I used to be, any of the you know old values that are no longer serving me, all of that. And I do fear, you know, I guess, a, a, an internet documentation of that evolution. But honestly, I really want to get into um, why. Why we, we would feel that way. And that's kind of the first, the first perfect segue into unpacking the damsel narrative that lives rent-free in most of our minds. And you believe me, we will be unpacking the damsel narrative. Um, but I think the most part about, you know, the princess culture, the damsel culture, isn't even, you know, the, the what first comes to mind, which is being expected to sit pretty and wait for the prince. For me, it's the part where the damsel is expected to be congruent for all of Happily Ever After. It's the part where a lot of people would feel utterly betrayed if they found out that sometime after the credits rolled on the sunset, that it rained. Uh, It's all fun, just please, it's all fun and fucking games until somebody finds out that Cinderella ended up a happily divorced lesbian in New York City with three cats and a career in journalism. I mean, all fun and games, because America's emotional fragility literally could not handle a character arc, a delayed character arc nonetheless, for our dearly beloved first princess. I I don't even know how America would process that, because I feel like in today's society, we have such a range of divisiveness and subculture. You know, I I feel like I can already see the Proverbs 31 wives, and you know the type. You know, they're going to ask Cinderella to coffee just to tell her that divorce is a sin. Um, They're also going to, at that same coffee date, recruit her into an MLM and also to QAnon. Um, And then we have, you know, the alternative type, woke Twitter, uh, that is going to tell Cinderella that, you know, if she would have known that marriage was bought and sold by capitalism, that she would have never gotten into this mess. We have diet culture and pop culture and cancel culture, um, and they would all have something to say about it. And almost none of it would be good or affirming. And and that's the thing. If they, uh, they being whoever creates these subcultures, creates a culture divisive enough where a character arc too dramatic in any direction is social suicide, they'll never have to worry about people willing to have, you know, big character arcs that would shake shit up. And I think that's the spell. That's where capitalism got us all. We, you know, we're all afraid to step out of line. We're all afraid to get it wrong, to shake shit up. Uh, And I think that comes from this deeply internalized knowledge that Cinderella really can't evolve past the ending without ruffling some feathers. And I think that scares so many of us because we used to, or still do, see ourselves in the Cinderella story. That said, I'd be lying if I didn't admit that in the past few weeks I've been thinking of creative ways to concede this podcast before ever putting myself in the arena. 
especially in the unrelenting era of cancel culture, especially when, you know, I know that if I had a deconstruction podcast, like Nobody's Damsel, that it's not if I fuck up, but when. And you know what? Honestly, especially because I honestly have no idea what I'm doing. But in perfect timing, and this really was perfect timing, I just recently got a message in my others folder on Instagram from a name I recognized, but it was like in a fever dream sort of way. Um, And Amber, like me, is all grown up with a family and she's so glad to see that I'm doing well. But she also wanted me to know um, that she doesn't think that she'd be alive if we hadn't talked that night. Um... What Amber Sunshine 243 from Milwaukee doesn't know is that I feel the very same way. And even though I'd comfortably pass away if anyone ever resurrected and consumed my online diary from 2012, I really would do it all over again a thousand times, even, you know, with everything that I didn't like or that I would have changed or that I don't resonate with now as an adult, um, to meet Amber in the DMs eight years later. And that was it for me. Uh, Nobody's Damsel was something that went from, you know, an idea in the back of my mind to something that I absolutely wanted to pursue at that point because I want to arrive, you know, wherever we go from here, having rigged the system to live a thousand lifetimes right here in this one. Mostly, though, I want to live in such a way that people like Amber and I have the opportunity to connect. I've obviously done a little bit of living between then and now. But the same innate drive, you know, to connect in a no-bullshit, vulnerable sort of way lives on. And I do feel like it is high stakes, high reward to challenge the status quo and to challenge the damsel narrative on what evolution can and should look like. (sighs) Anyways, uh, it's hard to talk on a podcast and not have someone with you because you can take breaths and drinks of water while the other person talks, but I'm just going right through it. What else? I guess I I should talk about how I recently came out on social media. You know, like a millennial. A few weeks before I came out, I told my my sister, my kid sister, over FaceTime that I was finally coming out on social media. And she dead ass goes, why? Like, can you please imagine this for a second? I was stoked. I was absolutely stoked. I wanted to have a brunch. I was grinning ear to ear. And my sister looks at me on FaceTime, completely unimpressed, and asks me why. And it's it's not because she doesn't fully support my sexuality, quite the opposite. Uh, It's because she's so progressive that for her, labels are non-binary. And at this point, you know, what is the thing that Gen Zs say right now? That people should really only be coming out if they're straight because that's the real news. Um, Yeah, I just absolutely love Gen Z. Uh, My sister is about to turn 18, which, um, holy shit, that's so fucking crazy because I asked for a baby sister on my sixth birthday in March of 2002. And in true first child fashion, I had a baby sister that very same year by the week after Christmas. And, you know, there truly is nothing that I haven't enjoyed about our six year age gap. When she was little, she was like my doll baby, and then she transformed into, of course, my star solo act for every Thanksgiving, choreographed dance. Um, 
You know, my whole life, she's been both my prodigy and my teacher. She's gorgeous and brilliant, and these days, she's a little bit goth, but I fucking love her so much, and it's a high honor that I take very seriously to have created an entirely new platform to embarrass her on. You'll definitely be hearing from her eventually, even if it is reluctantly. Um, We'll do a sister's episode, and we're also going to do... I don't know what would be a good episode for her. I think we're going to do a religion panel, so maybe I'll have her on (laughs) as one of the atheists, um, which atheism is not funny, uh, but I'm laughing because my mom is going to hear this, but it's okay. It's all good. Uh, Anyways, I bring up my firstborn only to talk about the striking differences between a Gen Z like my sister and a Gen Z millennial cusp like myself. There has been, you know, just there's so much emotional and social divide within every single um, new age group. And I will say that Gen Z is not fucking around. Uh, Gen Z is like the fuck your feelings energy that can make grown Trump supporters who call liberals snowflakes cry. And honestly, I feel like my sister's generation has got it together. If I asked my sister who Cinderella was, and there was no preference, there was no pref- you know, background, she would look at me dead in the eyes and say that Cinderella is whoever the fuck she wants to be. And then she'd leave. She'd go out the door with her little reusable tote and her stainless steel straw in her hand, and she'd just go on going on. She, she's, my sister does my college math homework. She's in college classes herself at 17, studying criminal law and climate change with other adult college people. Um, She's kind of like a goth Elle Woods, and I love it. She's also seen as much loss and struggle as I have, but in true Gen Z form, she's the goddamn comeback queen. Another thing that I know to be true is that uh, if she ever found the love of her life, and it was really the love of her life, she wouldn't need a carriage or a fairy godmother or anything to make that shit happen, because she'd leave out the door with her reusable tote and her stainless steel straw in her hand, and she'd go fucking get whoever the fuck she's in love with. Um, and I can I know that she she would say, she would run one five-inch glass stiletto slipper through the pouring rain, nothing but Lizzo's good as hell in her airport, AirPods, and a manifestation in her heart, of course, because manifestation is all the, all, the, all the Gen Z rage. But that's Gen Z, and we should be grateful because our climate complacency lands squarely on their generation. Um, Gen Z millennial cusps like myself, though, were built a little bit different. We were definitely washed in the water um, of evangelicalism, of just so many things. We were washed in the princess culture, water, all of it, and we were not deconstructing until later in our lives. So we're kind of of the mind that we'll run if we have to, but low-key, how fucking dope would the carriage be? Like, we're fragile, and our backs are starting to hurt, and we don't know how to use TikTok, and we're a little bit trauma-bonded to our patriotism because of having to endure, you know, 9-11 as children. (laughs) I guess that brings up a good point about who this podcast is for. Not long after my brief blogspot career went under, the era of connecting with people on Instagram was born. And I've been on Instagram for years, and for years I've been intersectional to countless niche social media communities, photography, holistic health, mental health, progressive Christianity, foster care, adoption, single motherhood. And honestly, all of these communities have been so welcoming and so good to me in their own way. 
but I'd be lying to you if I told you that I ever felt completely at home in any one of them. There's a lot of social pressure on Instagram to conform your account to kind of whatever niche passion you have. But I have so many, and they're changing often, they're changing so often, that my favorite part about social media has become connecting with like-minded individuals that too find themselves at any niche intersection that challenges the, the status quo. I think I created this podcast because I wanted to be able to dialogue and discourse beyond any social platform that has an unspoken expectation of congruency or conformity. And ultimately, you know, Nobody's Damsel is for anyone who wants to listen. It'll be a bit dull for the Gen Z crowd that seems to have it all together and seems to have very little deconstructing to do. And it'll be a bit much for the Proverbs 31 wives. But if you find some yourself, you know, somewhere in the messy middle, uh, rather that be your age somewhere in the messy middle or your beliefs and ideologies are somewhere in the messy middle, it could absolutely be the podcast for you. I know that if Cinderella really did end up divorced in New York City, some of you would feel betrayed and some of you would feel hurt. Personally, I would feel represented. This podcast is for anyone who would feel oddly the same. Most podcasts will be co-hosted by a guest and every podcast will be at the intersection of princess purity, political, and pop culture. So let's dive into that. What is princess culture? So princess culture is a a term that's coined by psychologists referring to the effect that society's general love for idealized princess and Disney's $5.5 billion princess enterprise has on children. So I don't know if you have heard the song that TikTok star turned viral musician Salem Elise released this year, but I'm mad at Disney, Disney, they tricked me, tricked me, had me wishing on a shooting star. Okay, so I don't sing unless you count my singing as like a dive bar sort of thing, um, which is really a full service. That's what this podcast is supposed to be. It's a full service. So speaking of dive bars, let's go ahead and dive deep um, into princess culture and unpack the different ways that it has shaped our biases, our body image, our codependency, and our toxic traits. Um, Just kidding, we're not going to do that today, but we're going to do that in future episodes. That is what we are going to be unpacking. Every single episode, no matter the topic, we're going to be clapping back hard at any of the micro or macro biases that live rent-free in our minds because of our foundational princess culture. As for what purity culture is, um, purity culture is something we're going to spend several episodes deep diving into. And when I say purity culture, I don't just mean like the toxic evangelical delusion that saving oneself for marriage is holy in the eyes of God, because we're also going to be talking about the broader, more pervasive culture that feeds the the purity culture complex. So this will include everything from unpacking modesty culture, the materialization of women in evangelical communities, and the general origin, rise, and installation of Americanized Christianity. Honestly, because this is the first episode, and I feel it's only fair to cover all of my personal bases... I will share, for those of you trying to develop a more thorough understanding of my beliefs as your host, that I personally identify as both a recovering ex-evangelical and an agnostic. 
For those of you that, you know, might be new to the world of agnosticism, or for those of you that may have been so heavily indoctrinated by faith communities that you have a bias towards anything that isn't, you know, conventional Christianity, I want to share that agnosticism, most commonly defined as the view that the existence of God or the divine or the supernatural is unknown or unknowable, to me, it really means that I firmly believe in a higher consciousness, but I don't believe that I am all-knowing enough to fully understand that higher consciousness or fully define or humanize that consciousness into a religion that, you know, like Christianity, 70% of the human population doesn't even practice it, and 30% of the human population vehemently and violently disagrees over it. Um, the anthropological phenomenon of Christian denominations, the rise and spread of world religions, the cultural installation of Christianity via radio shows and TV shows, and more recently, social media, um, I call this the ministry of confirmation bias. And we're going to be talking a lot about that. We're going to be talking about the full T on the unlikely bedfellowship between evangelicalism and political conservatism, and the, you know, how the Bible became political. Which, by the way, the Bible is an incredibly fascinating book, and we're going to be talking about that and so much more right here on Nobody's Damsel. Honestly, God and I are complicated. To me, you know, whatever is beyond the veil, which is something that I so firmly believe that there is something beyond the veil, it's just so much grander and more inclusive and more merciful than that of the God that we most commonly see propped up in religious settings. So for this reason, I identify as happily divorced from organized religion, um, and I anticipate that I will stay there for a long time. But I'm no stranger to Christianity. I'm no stranger to world religions. Um, and this podcast is going to be very intentional about holding space for those with all different religious and spiritual backgrounds, uh, people that are open to a hot new take on why millions of Americans leave organized religion without giving up their faith. As far as political culture, um, it is true that we are going to get political on this podcast, which really comes as zero surprise to those of you who are listening to this podcast, because if you follow me on Instagram, this segment will have a lot of intersectionality to what you're already seeing in my stories and, and that sort of thing. Um, it's also going to have a lot of intersectionality, like on Instagram, to uh, the conversation of religion. Because, you know, the good Lord in heaven, he gave me a spiritual gift of calling bullshit on the unusual hypocrisy of religion and politics. We're also going to be talking about Black Lives Matter and really going deep into conversations about systematic injustice, racial divide, racial tension, police brutality, social inequity, and so much more. Truly, I am hesitant to reference any of these things in the same breath that I talk about politics because, make no mistake, this is not political. It's necessary discourse. It's so important, and we're absolutely going to be talking so much about it here. Um, another topic that I'll obviously be touching on, if you know anything about who I am or, or what I'm passionate about, is a topic that very much intersects the conversation of social inequity, and that's foster care and adoption. I have personally fostered 12 children in three years, my now adopted children, Oliver and Hazel, as well as 10 other children that have all made their way home to their biological families. Just because it's the first episode, I'll tell you a little bit about, you know, Oliver and Hazel and my experience fostering and adopting. Both Oliver and Hazel's cases were very unique to the system. The overwhelming number of foster children 
you know, they successfully reunify with their biological parents or they go on to find permanency with a biological relative or family friend. Very, very occasionally, a child will, they will have no suitable biological family or family friends to reunify with, and that child will at that point become adoptable. In most cases, the child's foster family, you know, is invited to adopt them first. If the foster family is not willing or they're not able, the child becomes adoptable to a broader, you know, number of families in the area and then ultimately all over the United States. There are currently over 100,000 children in the United States that are waiting to be adopted out of foster care. So Hazel and Oliver's cases were unique for a number of reasons. Oliver's family was in a unique position and pretty openly supported me adopting him, which is a situation that literally does not happen in foster care. And Hazel's family was untraceable, so there was never any contact with anyone, including her biological parents. Throughout the entire process, which is a situation that is also, you know, it's incredibly rare to just have no contact so even though their adoptions should have been a little bit more straightforward than most, it still took the standard two-plus years for both adoptions to finalize. In those two years, I, I raised them as my own. There was no promise of tomorrow. And I can't really describe what that feels like, to fall in love with a child and be the only family they've ever known while knowing full well that the phone could ring at any moment and it could be a long-lost biological aunt waiting, you know, for custody, um, and they're asking to take the person you love most in the world, which is such a tricky thing because you know that loving them would mean letting them go, but you also know that, that letting them go would break your heart. So it has been the honor of my life to foster, and I sincerely hope that I get to foster for years to come, but adoption through foster care is definitely a form of emotional hardship that I wouldn't wish on anyone. Uh, I'm definitely not saying that it's not worth it, and I'm certainly not intentionally trying to detour you if foster care or adoption is on your heart, but holy fuck, there is no comparable pain, at least in my life walk, to that of loving a child as your own for years and all the while keeping you know, an open hand and open mind to the very real reality that they might not be your child forever. I acknowledge that in other counties across the country, the process to adopt a foster child who does not have any other path to permanency, it may look significantly different, more straightforward uh, to that of the process that I've described here, you know, through the lens of my personal experience in San Diego County. But I think I really do speak for an overwhelming number of parents who have decided to pursue the adoption of a child in their care when I say that there is really no comparison to the feelings associated with adopting through foster care. The reality is that few other life experiences directly intersect the joy and pain and loss and love and grief and peace and brokenness and redemption so perfectly. And it blows my entire mind every waking minute of the day that I have experienced it twice in my lifetime. I share all of this to explain that I think it goes without saying that ever since bringing Oliver home, I've been on an emotional edge. For three years, our lives have been at the epicenter of a system that literally swallows children whole. It was very early on in my experience as a foster parent that I started to see a lot of the horrors and inequity of the system. And it was very early on that I knew I couldn't ignore these, these things forever. 
But unfortunately, so much of the child welfare system is about bureaucratic relationships with lawyers and social workers and judges who all have all the power in the world over the permanent life plan of your child. When you want that child's permanent life plan to be, you know, a life with you, it's probably not in your best interest to try to shake shit up. But in those years, patiently gatekeeping my babies from the vulturous underbelly of child welfare, I saw the unthinkable. And I decided that after adopting Oliver and Hazel, I'd shake shit up to expose the truth um, and broaden the dialogue about the unspoken world of foster care and adoption. Even if it was the last thing that I did, I knew it was something that I wanted to be central to any work that I do moving forward. That said, we will absolutely talk about foster care and adoption in this podcast, but most of these conversations will be designed to appeal to a broad audience of listeners wanting to understand a system that affects their neighbors, even if they don't personally have any intention of intersecting their lives to foster care and adoption. We'll have most of these conversations with adult adoptees, former foster youth, and field experts. Foster care and adoption are cornerstone pieces of my life, but they are life itself to those that have lived through the experience. And in the case of Nobody's Damsel, shaking shit up is going to look a lot like exposing the truth about these issues, elevating voices, and discussing comprehensive solutions. In the department of pop culture, uh, pop culture in this podcast is going to come in the form of cultural commentary on current events and celebrities or people of influence. We'll rarely, rarely have episodes devoted to pop culture, but I'm absolutely not above a Harry Styles or a Bachelor reference or unpacking why, you know, a certain celebrity makes us feel a certain type of way or why subcultured, you know, elements are popping up in the media and that sort of thing. So, uh, I guess I should introduce myself, which should be easy, but the truth is that there's really nothing about this series of events that led to the creation of Nobody's Damsel that has been linear. I, I myself am a 24-year-old born and bred Southern Californian living right outside of downtown San Diego. I'm shacked up with my three-year-old son Oliver, my two-year-old daughter Hazel, and my three-month-old foster son. So I've been a single foster mom for three years. I started out at 21 at San Diego's youngest non-kinship foster parent. Um, And fast forward three years, and I've fostered 12 children, adopted Oliver, who came home at six weeks old in October of 2017, and adopted Hazel, who came home at 23 hours old in August of 2018. So I don't love to say that I'm an adoptive mom. I feel I've kind of ungrown outgrown that at this point, but um, just because it underscores the, the depth of the, the unlabeled bond that I have with my children. And I don't love saying that I'm a foster mom either, just because this is something that you know makes me feel that my dynamic with them is so temporary and so transactional, um, when in reality, and any foster parent knows this, that you love every child that comes through your home, even if just for a season, until your dying day. You remember their birthdays, you remember little things that they do, you wonder how they're doing. Um, sometimes you get like this emotional wave of, oh my gosh, I... I wonder what they're wearing today, or I wonder, you know, if they're meeting that milestone. And it's a lot to carry with you, but it's also incredibly, incredibly worth it. So while I ultimately do identify as both an adoptive mom and a foster mom, 
Of all the names and labels I turn my head to fastest, Mama and Just Mama is and always will be the one that saved me from myself. Um, I also love this. My most recent, my current placement, uh, the biological mom calls me baby mama um, because in every sense of the phrase, I've been the baby mama's baby mama a dozen times now. And so I'm obsessed with that. I think that that's just perfect. And I'm so angry at myself that I didn't think of it sooner because it feels so, you know, destigmatized and it just feels like that's exactly what I am. I'm your baby mama. Um, Another more recent name that I answer to is Pikachu's mama because Oliver has decided to unofficially change his name to Pikachu. Um, and I, by, by proxy, am now the proud mother of a Pokemon, which is a franchise that I admittedly know nothing about, not unlike most other parts of parenthood, but he picked it up at school and it's been a little over a week now. He's actually transitioned into, he'll say, my name is Oliver Phoenix Pokemon, so he's just kind of gotten rid of the Coburn and now Pokemon, or not Pokemon, Pikachu, Oliver Phoenix Pikachu. And so Oliver Phoenix Pikachu, he's out with the the old last name, he's now, his last name is Pikachu. So, that's that on that. Um, never any shortage of funny toddler stories in my life. But uh, beyond motherhood, which can really easily become a woman's most defining characteristic, uh, and we'll get to that. We'll unpack that in this podcast. Uh, I'm a lifestyle family and wedding photographer, a freelance writer, an undergraduate student studying behavioral anthropology and neuroscience, and a mental health and holistic wellness advocate. Um, I started Ellie Coburn Photography out of my basement bedroom in the spring of 2014, and nearly seven years and over 750 incredible clients later, it's still the passion project turned career that keeps the lights on, that's getting me through school, that's you know allowing me the opportunity to have this incredible experience fostering, and I owe so much of my life and my, and my, my gratitude to my photography career. So, anyways... With that all being said, I want to just briefly talk about where the podcast came from. That was definitely the number one question that I got, um, aside from what it was going to be about and all of that. We want to know kind of where it came from. And Nobody's Damsel, like I said, it is the final product of an idea that I've had in the back of my mind for a long time, but it's more recently, as I've shaped it and prepared to release it, it's been kind of the manifestation of a series of events, of a series of events. Some of them unfortunate, some of them beautiful and redemptive, um, but a series of events nonetheless. In childhood, I experienced a lot of loss, loss of innocence, loss of a parent, loss of control over my own life, and loss of autonomy over my own body. Um, without any resources or support to help unpack my childhood trauma, my early adolescent experience was a pretty violent and devastating mental war between mania and reality. So I grew up in a white picket fenced upper middle class, uh, kind of utopian small town on the coast of San Diego. Coronado, not unlike the Hamptons or Orange County, it bred a level of social and emotional apathy um, that ultimately kind of set the stage for an extremely complex, convoluted Netflix special of a secret that orbited around my, my spiraling mental health. Uh, communities like Coronado 
they don't have the social and emotional infrastructure to support children in crisis, and they don't have the tools or resources to even appropriately identify a struggling child, potential mania, suicidality, and the like. Uh, so it's a long, complex story that ultimately ended in me leaving high school in October of my senior year, spending six months in extreme emotional distress at war with my mental illness uh, that at the time looked a lot like extreme dissociation, manic suicidal depression, anxiety, um, and then emotionally stabilizing about seven months later through a complex therapy process called integration. Growing up in Coronado, our parents used to call it the bubble because nothing bad really ever happened there, uh, at least on the surface, of course. And because of that, I think, fictitious sense of security uh, that our ch you know, children weren't going to be abducted, there was no real... Um, I guess, accounting for the fact that they could be hurt in other ways. And so children were given an insane amount of social autonomy and personal freedom without any real adult supervision or guidance. And this particular set of circumstances, it breeds a community with an extreme white-collar drug issue, alcoholism, widespread, widespread varying levels of dissociation and delusion bullying, and a lot of emotional compartmentalization for those that don't fit the very narrow, very superficial mold of the who's who. Uh, now that I'm an adult, I understand just how pervasive the psychological trauma that Coronado left on literally hundreds of students who compromised themselves to fit in or who chose not to compromise themselves and in turn paid the ultimate price of ostracization. Um, and that's been an integral part of my healing as well, is understanding that while my certain situation was unique, uh, the feelings that I had about the trauma that I experienced there was not unique. So after my dramatic October 2013 departure from high school, um, and after my seven-month war with my mind, I emerged, uh, by the grace of all that is good and holy, with a curiosity about life that translated loosely into a will to live. I relocated eight hours north, right outside of San Francisco, and started Ellie Coburn Photography. Um, that passion project quickly turned into the successful career that I mentioned. Uh, and that should really have been the end or the beginning of the story. But unfortunately, the, the person that I was in a situationship with in high school, when I was kind of at the height of my worst, reached out to me. And I pretty quickly fell back into old habits and old vices. Suddenly, I was commuting between Northern California and Southern California until finally I just relocated to Southern California altogether. To a degree, I fell back in with the same group of toxic, unsupportive friends from high school and back into the same situationship that had pushed me to my emotional breaking point um, you know, in high school. Over the years, I was able to really effectively compartmentalize my life, justifying all of the relationships that weren't serving me as safe and secure, while still managing to successfully build out my career and experience a lot of really amazing things at the intersection of photography and art and my other biggest passion, social advocacy. So for years, I was functioning, and I would even argue, or I would have argued at the time, that I would have labeled myself high-functioning. But the truth is that my adult life wasn't an example of someone who was healed from past trauma and liberated from social constructs or biases that didn't serve me. It was more so the example of someone who, like so many others, was playing it safe with a world of unpacked hurt and trauma 
perfectly tucked away into a box on the highest emotional self shelf. <laughs> My relationships with these people, they were always surface level. And in some cases, they were very emotionally one-sided, even emotionally abusive, because these are people who I would try to prove my, my worth to and keep, you know, keep, you know, I would say, what's my worth? What's my keep? And, and just kind of go above and beyond to, to try to prove that. These people would flock to me when they needed something, but they would also never invite me to anything. People who were directly intersectional to my mental health in high school, but who never, not once as an adult, asked me how I was doing or if I needed support. But it was safe and it was familiar. And eventually, living this way caught up with me. And in a particularly dramatic turn of events in the summer of 2019, um, I needed my loose social network to support me through a really horrible situation. Instead of getting the help I needed, I was pretty immediately ostracized and shamed at my lowest. I was at my lowest. This was a situation that I really don't want to get into the details of during the first episode, but it involved the kids. It involved, you know, me and my safety. And I went to them, not unlike they had come to me, you know, a thousand times for different things. And most of them, there was just this bizarre groupthink situation that does happen a lot in communities like Coronado, where I guess they did the math and it just wasn't, I wasn't worth their time. And, um, of course, I'm, I'm significantly oversimplifying the, the nuanced complexities of the story, but the whole situation pretty much dramatically, you know, altered the course of my life. And at, at the end of the day, the synopsis is that I got done really dirty, lies got spread about me, and ultimately the people who I was calling my friends were not my friends. I knew that. I knew that well before this happened, but I had chose to stay because... That was just my default. However, when things happened at this point in this particular instance, instead of showing up at their houses and trying to make nice or getting up, you know, to any of my old habits, I decided to look towards the future for the sake of myself, but mostly for the sake of my growing children whose lives were not even remotely enriched by those I was surrounding myself with. I call this dramatic, you know, unfortunate series of events the split-second free fall between monkey bars. My entire life, up until that point, I had been clinging, arms exhausted, muscles shaking, tears running down my face, to a community and a loveless situationship that was not only not serving me, it was actively hurting me. I found virtue in the art of compartmentalization because throughout my whole upbringing in Coronado, the reinforced narrative was that moving on from things and not making a big deal out of things and saving face and compromising values, um, you know, that's, that's, that was their status quo. Don't upset the culture. Don't upset the social assimilation. These were the types of lives that were being modeled um, as virtuous behavior. And I was so socially conditioned and also so terrified of my unpacked box up high on that shelf that I never would have reached for the next monkey, monkey bar. I never would have free-fallen free had it not been for the fact that I was forced to reevaluate everything in that situation. Up until that point, I had been clinging so tightly, not just to this toxic group of people, but also to a lot of 
social norms and things like my unpacked Christianity and my political and social biases. And during the free fall between uh, what I refer to as the incident in the summer of 2019 and my healing process, I made the decision that I was going to heal in a very, very unconventional way, at least unconventional for the type of healing that I was taught about. I decided that I was going to unpack what was what was on the shelf, neatly boxed away, and I decided that I was going to face my fears, face my trauma, face my history, and l- deliberately and intentionally heal from it before living my life. The analogy came to mind that I was going to slay the dragon before going on to do my thing. And so much of princess culture, if you read or watch anything where there is a dragon, which is almost always a metaphor in a fairy tale story for, you know, something deeper than just, oh, it's a dragon. Normally that dragon represents something that, you know, you need to face, something that you need to slay. The dragon often represents, you know, someone's fears or something that they're running from. And um, in every case throughout our cultured history, the dragon is always the kind of the last thing on the screen. It's the, it's the big finale. You know that the movie is about to end, the book is about to come to its clim- climactic you know, storyline when the dragon surfaces. And I got to thinking a lot about how fucked up that is how fucked up it is that we are taught and we're conditioned at every social level that we need to be running from the dragon for most of the movie, that we can only face the things that are most complex to us towards the end of the storyline. And when I think about it, and when I think about the virtue of, or the not virtue, but it's seen as a virtue, of compartmentalization of our emotions and just moving on without processing, I think a lot of that comes back to a social culture that endorses this idea that you need to play it safe, you don't need to you know, unpack every little thing that you've been through, and you need to just kind of keep on keeping on. And so I realized that I did not want that to be my story. I realized that I didn't always want to feel like there was something in my back pocket, like there was something that I was running from, something that I hadn't fully addressed. And I started um, with a collaborative care team of therapists that I still see to this day. They keep the wheels on the bus. They're incredible. For the first time in my life, I uh, got actually formally diagnosed with uh, a series of diagnoses that made a tremendous amount of sense to me that finally were able to um, really help me understand, even if it was in hindsight, what was going on in my brain and in the you know physiological makeup of, of my identity when I was struggling with um, the things that I was struggling with both as a child and as an adolescent. And through that process, even though that was a very personal process, um, I started to think about, well, first I started to uh, challenge my other views because I was in the middle of this like whole and complete deconstruction in, in the world of my mental health, in the world of, you know, challenging why I was uh, allowing myself to be treated the way I was being treated in relationships and friendships. And it was right there at that intersection that I also started challenging things like my Christianity and my politics and my social biases. And that is something that I started to share on social media. And um, 
that's when I started dialoguing with many of you in, you know, a couple years back. You may remember if you're someone who's been around for a while, I started to just post up different things, different deconstruction conversations. I used to call it on my stories, the messy middle, where we would just talk about, you know, hey, this doesn't sit well with me in Christian ideology. Hey, this doesn't sit well with me in the, you know, the world of purity culture or whatever. And it was at that point that I very quickly realized that there was a very very large niche audience who was having these same sort of feelings about um, all of the nuances of deconstructing our worldviews um, and of unpacking our biases. And so Nobody's Damsel was born right at that intersection, uh, right when I felt, you know, I was free falling into the next chapter of my life for better or worse. I was on the road to recovery. I was really, really going deep and really facing the dragons in my own life. And it was then and there that I realized that I wasn't alone in this process and that I wanted to show other people that they too could take the road less traveled and that they too could be you know, autonomous over their own lives and decide to pursue healing in a non-superficial way, decide to really challenge the status quo, look at the history, look at the origin, the facts, um, and go deep into these you know, very socially amb ambiguous, ambigu amb I cut the cameras, cut the cameras, uh, <laughs> in this very social um way that was contrary to what might be um, the normal status quo. So anyways, that's that. And then there was kind of this perfect segue because, um, well, a lot of you know that I was recently on, the only other time that I've done a podcast was recently when I was invited on Chatty Broads. Um, so Chatty Broads with Becca and Jess is a podcast hosted by Becca Martinez and Jess Ambrose. So Becca and I connected about foster care via DM a little over a year ago and went on to become internet friends. Fast forward to this past summer when she invited me to come on to her podcast to share my story and talk about foster care and adoption. I agreed, but on the pretense that we would wait until after Hazel's adoption to, you know, record the episode. I knew that Chatty Broads was the kind of platform that I wanted to be honest and vulnerable on. And I felt like a lot had been leading up to that with, again, me, me kind of touching or teasing my deconstruction journey and my own stories and finding that that platform was a little bit um, constricting, if that makes sense. But um, so, yeah, I agreed. I said, let's wait until after Hazel's adoption. I knew that Chatty Broads was the kind of platform that I wanted to be honest and vulnerable on. And I knew that if her adoption wasn't said and done, that I wouldn't feel comfortable being candid on something that had a little bit of a broader reach about things like my mental health or my real feelings about the foster care system. But after two long years in foster care, Hazel was adopted this past September 18th. Uh, and a couple weeks later, I was sitting in a recording studio in Los Angeles with Becca and Jess. And this was, for the very first time, the first opportunity that I had to speak candidly. And I didn't know what I was going to say, but for the first time in my adult life, and certainly for the first time since I had been kind of putting my toe in the water of um, communicating about the deconstruction process, I, I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared to say any of it. And that 
was the point at which I decided that nobody's damsel was the right next step and that it made the most sense. And in this shocking, not shocking, I shouldn't be surprised, but I am continually surprised, um, follow-up from the podcast, I found uh, thousands more like-minded individuals that uh, also feel and have these same feelings about their own personal, you know, deconstruction journeys and all of that. And so it was funny... (laughs) By the way, I don't have an outline anymore. I ran out of outline about three minutes ago, so I'm kind of off the cusping right now. But it was funny because not 24 hours after the podcast episode released, I went to work like I do every single Saturday um, in Coronado, which is, for those of you that don't understand you know, the geography of where Coronado is, Coronado is one of the most lucrative photo marketplaces, especially for families and weddings um, in the San Diego, greater San Diego area. And so, um, like I said, been doing it for seven years. It's right next to my mom. My mom does live in Coronado, and it's just all very convenient. And so, yes, I still run, um, despite a lot of you know the, my complex feelings about this community, I still run a successful company predominantly out of Coronado. And so I go to work like I do every single Saturday. And part of the reason why over the years I, I've been so comfortable, you know, keeping my, my work local in that area is because I've very oddly, even though it is a small community, had little to no overlap with anybody that triggers me or that, you know, reminds me of that dark season in my life. And so I go to work like I do and I always park my car in like this very specific area um, and I walk through this little local park and on the other side of the park is the beach where I meet my clients. And so um, on this particular Saturday, 24 hours after the Chatty Bras episode had aired, um, I'm walking through the park and there's a lot going on, a lot of different little group of, you know, groups of people. And I'm a people watcher. I love that. And so I did notice um, one group of people, they had, they had gone all out. They brought the the wooden pallets and the, the, you know, the, the floor pillows like the, that you use as the seats and the decor and there was balloons and it was just great. Anyways, their balloon said 25. And I looked away from, you know, after very, very briefly glancing at their party, I looked away from their party because something else I don't know now what it was had caught my eye. And I was also thinking in my mind about how I'm going to be 25 soon and about how I want to start planning my birthday. And um, do I want to go to Palm Springs? What do I want to do? My wheels are turning um, all the way up until the point that I'm very much out of sight, out of mind. And my birthday thought process winds down and a new thought process pops up and that is, wait, who else is local to Coronado that is turning 25? And immediately I'm like, no, no, there's no way, right? Because I look like a potato and there's no way. And my inner therapist that's what I call the voice that I use to mitigate a lot of like my irrational fears or my anxiety. Um, my inner therapist immediately is like, no girl, of course not. Of course that wasn't them. You're ridiculous. Like you just talked about them in a podcast and you are walking, you look like a potato. You, you're a walking potato. The Lord would never do you like that. Well, he did, except for I didn't know it. I, at this point, fully believed that by the grace of my inner therapist's voice that I was good to go and that I was in the clear and that it was totally illogical to think that after all these years I would see them. 
So I go to my session, all is great and good. It's a family that I've been working with for a long time, a family that I adore. And um, their son, um, we have just, just, I've been photographing him since he was literally in the belly. And so um, he says to me, and he's five now, he says to me, Miss Allie, do you want a Jolly Rancher? And this is at the very end of our session, and we're walking off the beach together. And he reaches into his corduroys and pulls out a Jolly Rancher. And my first thought is like, oh, no. Did you have that Jolly Rancher in your pocket this whole time? Because in my head, I'm just thinking about the editing nightmare that that's going to be. Um, and I didn't catch that little Jolly Rancher-sized bump. Um, but I end up just taking it with a grain of salt and taking the Jolly Rancher. Because the mom was like, oh, we have so many of those in the car. I don't even know. I didn't know we had that one. And I was just like, yeah, fuck yeah, I want a Jolly Rancher. I'll take it. And so I did. I said my goodbyes. I popped the Jolly Rancher in my mouth, put my mask back on, and walked back to my car, like I do every Saturday. And at this point, again, I've so hyper-rationalized my fear of seeing these people that I decide that it's totally fine for me to walk back through the park because it's obviously not them. Well, I go through the park, and it is them. The second that I, I, I take that step out of that blind spot between the beach and the park into the park itself, I notice that it's them. And you want to know what I do? I inhale, <laughs> inhale my Jolly Rancher. <laughs> I inhale my Jolly Rancher because I took a deep breath realizing what had happened and my Jolly Rancher shot into the back of my esophagus and I'm now in a situation where first of all I'm avoiding all eye contact if there is any I have no idea if they've seen me or if they haven't seen me that remains to be seen I don't know but I do know that I need to get the fuck out the club and so I decide in this moment I'm physically now I'm dying I'm physically my airway is obstructed and I decide that I would rather die, I would significantly rather die than, than be forced to choke on a Jolly Rancher in front of the same high school mean girls who I just called out in a podcast 24 hours earlier. So naturally, I decide to run because that's not attention getting at all. And now I'll, I'll give myself, you know, I wasn't getting the most oxygen at that point, so whatever. But let's be honest, with the amount of ADHD that I have, I, I would have done that fully with a full amount of oxygen. But let's just blame it on the fact that I'm choking, that I made this decision. So I'm now running through the park, and it's not like a, you know, like a, a brisk run. It's not just like a casual thing. Like maybe she has somewhere to be. It's like I'm choking on a Jolly Rancher, and I'm just kind of like struggling along at a faster pace than a walk. <laughs> and... Um, the Jolly Rancher, at some point in all of this, comes back up. It comes back into my mouth, which is disgusting, but fine, whatever. And I get my first breath. And with my first breath, um, my OCD, which is the lead competitor of my ADHD, tells my body. And they're, they're horrible communicators. These two do not communicate. They do not transition well. And so right now, my ADHD is just running the show. And my OCD, in my first oxygenated uh, thought, oxygenated? Is that a word? Oxygenated. Wow. Okay. Well, cut the cameras on that. But regardless, um, in my first moment, my first sober breath, I my o my OCD says, "You look like a fucking fool." If they see that that is you, you look like a fucking limping horse. Slow the fuck down. And that would have been fine 
if, again, my OCD wasn't such a poor communicator with the rest of my body, which is why I'm socially awkward. It's why I've always been a little bit just, you know, different than the other cool girls. Um, and I just abruptly stop. Just, like, abruptly stop. And this is, like, at the perfect point of when they could definitely identify who I am and just, like, see this very odd performance. And immediately my ADHD is like, you look dumb. Let's start running faster. And then my, and then my OCD is like, no, we've already committed. We've already committed to, to walking. So now we're walking. And then I had to walk at a snail's pace after just doing a very bizarre, unexplainably bizarre run, unless you knew that I was choking, um, past the group, past the party, avoid eye contact, pretend like I pretend and pray that nobody saw me and then get to my car. And that's when I decided, oh, okay, like 100% I'm doing a podcast because I, there is nothing that I, that I could do to top the way that I have embarrassed myself in front of these people since literally 2010. And so I say, fuck it, let's do the podcast. There is literally nothing to lose. And um, that's when I started the process. <laughs> Um, it was really, really funny because I got home and my best friend was there watching the kids and I just had this look on my face like I'd seen a ghost and it's just, it's so, so interesting. I haven't really touched on how there was just a really unique situation where, um, right when everything happened and transpired, uh, during the incident of 2019, um, I randomly established very quickly a new social network that honestly it aside from divinity I really can't explain where that social network came from a lot of people they were people that I that I knew loosely and that I reconnected with or people that you know um I just hadn't been given giving time and energy to um that were more like let's go to coffee type friends and uh through in and through this we we just bonded and a lot of us were going through our own shit at the time and it, it worked out really well. But I do have, and I have had through this whole un unpacking, deconstructing process, a really solid um, friend group to kind of walk through everything with. And 100,000%, 100,000%, the best part about having the friends that I have now is the way we do life together. Um, before 2019, I had really never been a part of a group of women that so deeply personifies the meaning of sisterhood. Um, and a lot of us, like I said, we met and reconnected at a time in our life when we were going through the shedding of disingenuous friendships, which ended up becoming a huge guiding principle for the way that we operate and communicate in our own friendships. Um, and, like, I can't tell you how many nights have just ended in us crying, <laughs> just like, I would do anything for you. And it's just, like, you know, that really gross sisterly love. Um, anyways, I'm also really fucking challenged by my friends. Um, I've never had a friend group that challenges me to take accountability for my duality, to hold people who have misused me accountable for their duality. Um, I think so much of punitive friendship has the potential to be the endorsement of like really shitty behavior. Um, and that was my overwhelming experience with, with prior friend groups. And so, um, I came home and my best friend is waiting for me. And I think this like weird sort of unspoken byproduct of being so close to my friends has been the way that my triggers are now their triggers and vice versa. Like 
I don't know a single soul in the entire state of Arkansas. Never in my life have I ever met anyone, let alone anyone of significance, who is like, hi, I'm from Arkansas. But you bet your ass that I, that based solely on the fact that my best friend's toxic ex is an Arkansas native, that every time I hear its name, I'm like, nah, fuck Arkansas. Like, come on. Friends don't let friends irrationally hate Arkansas or German shepherds or forearm tattoos. Absolutely not. I may never have met him because y'all dated before our friendship and because you, you know, that's just all that. But, of course, I roll my eyes at every 2007 Toyota Camry because your triggers are my triggers. And, um, anyways, in that same vein, I get home and I tell my best friend what happened and she freaks out and we all freak out and it's all, it's all good. Um, but that level of... I guess, community healing or the, the healing that comes through um, friendship is definitely probably one of the biggest reasons why I'm doing as well as I'm doing. And one thing that I've noticed from connecting with other people on the internet is not everybody has that. Some people are in the messy middle um, and they don't have that network of support. Some of them are in the messy middle and they're right in that horrible um you know, situation that I was in where you're shedding your friends. Some of you are even shedding your family if you're deconstructing your faith or you're deconstructing your sexuality or what have you. And um, I know that I have been uniquely lucky to make the friends that I have. And so I think a big part of Nobody's Damsel is going to be curating that sense of community, um, even if it's not just, you know, with me at the epicenter, but with you all at the epicenter. If I have, you know, 15 listeners, I want those 15 listeners to be able to connect. If I have 1,500 listeners at some point, I want those 1,500 listeners to be able to connect because I never, ever, ever want you to see your high school mean girls in a park choke on a Jolly Rancher and not be able to come to some sort of safe group and say, hey, I really need to just let you know that I need my trigger to be your trigger right now. And so that's what Nobody's Damsel is. It's this, um, it's so many things, but it really is this pervasive under, uh, underlying sense of community that I hope and, and pray to build um, here in, the, in this space. But obviously listening to Nobody's Damsel, there's no prerequisite, there's no requirement for you to get connected with our community at all. I just want it to be an option. I especially want it to be an option, um, not just for those that you know have no in-person community, but for people who have an in-person community, but not one that they can go deep into these conversations with. So uh, with that being said, I think that the overarching theme here is that I am, I am very, very aware that I'm damned if I do, but I'm also very, very aware that I'm damned if I don't. And so I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to put myself out there. And I think so much of life is about, at least in my own experience, it's about wanting to say something, but also not wanting to be the first one to say it. And I've spent a lot of years in that position where I'm waiting for, you know, somebody to come forward and say like, oh, I've been thinking this way or I think this is wrong. And then at that point, I'm like, yeah, you're right. I've been thinking that way too or I, you know, whatever. For me, Nobody's Damsel is such a passion and heart project because it is me saying, hey, I'll go first. Um, I'll tell my embarrassing stories and speak openly and candidly about my process and my journey if it means that even one of you feel like 
now you can also go forward and do the same sort of unpacking and the same sort of um, deep diving because ultimately at the end of the day, uh, we're nobodies. Uh, we are our own keepers. And um, it's time to start clapping back at some of this bullshit that we have been subjected to for um, for way, way too long. So I'm excited. I'm so, so, so excited to really get right into it. And if you have anything that you'd like to see um, out of this podcast, out of this community, don't be shy. Let me know. Um, Instagram DM is always a great way to communicate, but you can also email me at hello at nobodystancel.com. Alrighty, let's get into it, folks. Um, See you back here next Friday. We are going to have an amazing episode with an amazing guest um, called Mirror Mirror Part 1.